2. As we continue our marvelous study of this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, and, uh, um, and we've entitled the series Finding Joy in Christ Alone. And um, the title of this morning's message is The Exaltation of Christ. The Exaltation of Christ. I want to begin this morning by for helping you consider a top 10 list. Many people like top 10 lists. Here's the top 10 list for this morning. According to Forbes magazine, here are the top 10 most powerful people in the, wor in the world. Uh, this is Forbes ma magazine. And I looked for the last three years and it hadn't changed a whole lot. Maybe somebody will go from like three to four and they'll jump one. But the top 10 have been the same for about three years. And here's what they said here most recently. Number 10, Michael Duke. He's the CEO of Walmart. Number nine, now I'm, I'm not going to pronounce all these names because some of them um, are in different languages I've never read and uh, may offend someone, but uh, um, this, the next guy is Mario Draghi, um, president of European Central Bank. And then the next guy, there's no way, I know his first, I don't know if it's his first name, Abdullah, and it ends with Al Saud, and he's the king of Saudi Arabia. Number, that's number seven is Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Federal Reserve. Number six, Bill Gates. Uh, now he's co-chair of Gates Foundation. Number five, Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany. Number four, Pope Francis. Number three, I cannot pronounce uh, this uh, because it's in Chinese. So the General Secretary of the Communist Party in China is number three. And number two, Barack Obama. And number one, from the country I've visited more than any other country besides the United States, Russia, Vladimir Putin. Okay, number one most powerful person in the world. So those are the top ten most powerful people in the world. And all these people hold prominent and powerful positions. We would all agree with that this morning, in, in our world at least. And, and many people, for various reasons, hold these people in high regard. They, 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 these people are, are, are exalted in the eyes of many. Uh, now, I've been to Russia eight times. And uh, Vladimir Putin is highly regarded by many in Russia, and almost, again, worshipped like a czar um, before the Soviet Union, or uh, worshipped like a dictator during the Soviet Union. Again, there's some concern there, but uh, I've been there, and I've seen this, and many people hold him in, in, in high regard. It's what even weird, they even hold people who are dead in Russian high regard, because they keep their bodies preserved, right? Stalin there in, in um, Stalin's tomb in Moscow, that's kind of weird. But they, they hold these people in high regard. And even in our own country, people hold people in high regard. Maybe it's Bill Gates for you. Uh, maybe it's uh, someone else. Maybe it's a sports figure. But uh, other people have their own list, right? If you rate, what's the 10 most people, 10, top 10 people for you that you hold in high, most high regard, most highest esteem, that they need to be exalted because of who they are of what they've done? You've got your own list. Uh, I think most of us do. Well, this morning, we're going to be reminded by the Lord through Paul here in Philippians that the only one being who is to be exalted in the highest place is the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is to be exalted above the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, his place is so high, no one, no one can comprehend it. No one will ever attain the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can all agree he should be exalted. And he alone ultimately should be exalted to the highest place. And my prayers this morning, as we look at this passage, we'll be overwhelmed by the greatness and the majesty at the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so much so that when we leave here, we'll be changed. Never be the same because 
we'll look at this passage, maybe in a way you've never looked at it before, maybe just a reminder or a fresher, but if we really understand this passage, we can't help but leave here being changed. Or we didn't understand it. We missed the whole thing. When we look at the exaltation of Christ, and I, my prayer is that our attitudes, our actions, our words will all be changed as a result of our time this morning in God's word. So let's pray and let's ask God to do what only he can do here through his word. Lord, we are at your mercy as always, um, Lord, for you to illumine our hearts and our minds to understand your word. Uh, Lord, this is your word. It's your living word. It's active. Uh, Lord, it is sharper than any double-edged sword, able to, to, to divide even the soul and the spirit, searching the intentions of our heart, Lord, getting down to the deepest recesses of our heart. And Lord, there's people here this morning that need to be encouraged. And Lord, you know that better than I. And I, Lord, I pray you'd use your word to bring great encouragement to you, to, to, to them. Lord, I, I pray for those this morning that need to be challenged. They need to be changed in some way. That they are not exalting you to the highest place and living as if you are the exalted king. And Lord, I pray that you would change their heart. And Lord, many other areas of our hearts need to be changed. And we trust that you know best. And you will use your word by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about change. So Lord, we, are, we again cry out to you and ask for you to do a work. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive in these, 11, uh, these, these three verses, 9 through 11 this morning, let's just be reminded of where we are in the book of Philippians. It's been a couple weeks. We had Chris Steyer here from Albania last week preaching, and then I was out of town the Sunday before, and, and Jared preached. And so you had two good preachers in, the war, in a row, and then you got me back. Um, so nobody laughed. I guess that wasn't funny. All right. Um, <clears throat> That's sad. When you, if you want to be funny, you have to have people. Would you laugh, please? We have a laugh track up here. Um, but I want us to be reminded, because it's been a few weeks, that's why I say this, be reminded where we are in context so we make sure we understand this in context. I, I, I'm still working on my top 10 uh, series, top 10 verses taken out of context in all of Scripture. And what's a shame is my guess is some of them are your favorites. All right? So I'm working on that, but we don't want to do that here in Philippians. We don't want to take these out of context. So we want to understand what God through Paul is trying to get, first of all, through to the original recipients. You always want to ask that question. What were the original recipients understood? And in order to do that, you've got to see it in context. So when we get what they got, we understand what they understood, then we'll get it right. That's the only way we can apply the truth we'll find here. So a few weeks ago, uh, we, we discovered uh, just one thing. You remember that? In verse 27 of chapter 1, just one thing. Paul said, I just want you to know one thing. That's it. He didn't have three points in a poem in his sermon. He had one. Just one thing. And look at verse 27. Here, here it is. He says, only conduct yourselves. Okay, this word only is the word monos. And we, we, we are monos. We, we understand that means one. He said, there's just one thing I could leave with you. This is it. What's the one thing? To conduct yourself in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Christ. That's the one thing. And, and, and this, this imperative, it's a command, not a suggestion, a command to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the overarching imperative of the whole book. From here on out, everything draws back to this in a sense. And, and we'll keep going back to this. One thing. One thing. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing. Now, the rest of the book is how's that what's that look like what does, it, what does it mean to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ and that's what paul does he lays it out this is what it looks like just one thing 
So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, first in verses 28 through 30, we, we learn to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. First, by standing firm and fearing not. Standing firm on the gospel and fearing not our enemies who hate the gospel and hate us because we love Christ. That's the first way to flesh out living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, we learn that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ through selfless humility, which was summed up really in verses 3 and 4, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind. Regard one another as more important yourself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also the interest of others. How do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of Christ? Well, you stand firm. You fear not, and you live with selfless humility. That's what it looks like to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. So this clear imperative it, um, it is the main way, really, this, this verses 3 and 4 is the main way in chapter 2 that we live this out. And we, I went through this before, but all of chapter 2 is really centered around verses 3 and 4. This selfless humility. And he gives example after example and illustration after illustration all the way to the end of chapter 2. Jesus first, Paul himself, Timothy, and then Epaphroditus. All examples of verse 3 and 4. They conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Christ by, through selfless humility. That's chapter 2. But we're not done with chapter 2. All right? We're not going on chapter 3 yet, so don't get too hasty there. All right? But look, look with me now <clears throat> again at verse 5, which we covered last time we were together. Have this attitude which was also in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. He says, be like Christ. Be like Christ. What attitude? Selfless humility. And then he lays out the standard of selfless humility, which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his humiliation. Uh, and in a sense, this, he, he, this standard of, I talked about this a little bit, the standard to, to be selfless like Christ was, you're like, oh. You're reading through the Bible, it says, forgive like God and Christ forgave. Man, that's kind of a big standard. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Oh, man. Be selfless like Christ was selfless. That seems impossible. And in the flesh, it is impossible. We cannot live this out without Christ. So not only does he start with Christ as the ultimate illustration of this principle, which we saw a few weeks ago, but we're going to learn next time we're getting Philippians, but Christ is not only the illustration, but he's also the power to live it out. And that's verses 12 through 13. But don't jump there yet. We've got to get verses uh, 9 through 11 this morning. So, uh, so, so far, we, in, in, in our study in chapter 2, we've seen the humiliation of Christ, the, the, the selfishness of, of, we're called to the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 8. And then today we're going to look at the exhortation of Christ. And that just may remind you the flow of verses 6 through 11. This is important. You, you need to see this. And, and we can become very linear, right, engineers? And I'm a linear thinker. Everybody says that when I talk about engineers, I'm getting on them. No, I, I think the same way. I like spreadsheets too because I think that way. But, but sometimes we look at literature that way and we look at living, active, active word of God in a linear way only. And we'll miss something here. And we're not, we don't, we, the internet and all that stuff is wonderful, but it's ruined us. We don't read much anymore. And we, we, we miss out on beautiful literary devices. And here's this literary device. This is what he's going to do. So in verse 6, Christ is exalted. Look there in verse 6. 
He existed in the form of God. He's exalted. Here he is. I'll put it over here. He, he's exalted. And, and then we see in, in verses 7, 7 through 8, this humiliation. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and found in the appearance of man. Verse um, 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now he's at the low. We start, he started in an exalted position. He's as low as you can go. And guess what happens in verse 9 through 11? He's exalted again. So he goes from exaltation to humiliation to exaltation. That's verses 6 through 11. And it's interesting, verses 6, to get to humiliation, there's this, this, these, these phrases that describe just this gradual process. It, it's not, it wasn't necessarily gradual, but it seems like this, he's just building up to this, this humiliation. But the exaltation, he just goes straight back to the exaltation. Like that. There's no time lapse in a sense. And there's a purpose of that for us to see the, the movement that's in this passage. This is one of the most powerful and Christ-exalting passages in all of the New Testament. And my prayer is you'll understand that if you haven't already from this passage. You'll be reminded of that maybe. It's an explanation of what we see in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Right here. This is an explanation. This is a summary of what we see in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And since I spent a few years just recently preaching through what Gospel? John. I'm glad you remembered. Right, he had four guesses, right? But I've spent a few years preaching through John. We're going to look at John. And we're going to see that this principle, how this is an explanation and a summary of all that we saw in John. Now, I'm not going to preach all through John this morning, so don't worry. But, but I want us to see this and, and, and see what Paul is doing here as he has these, these believers in Philippi reflect back on the life of Jesus. So I want you to, if you got your digital Bible today, you might get lost. Because we're going to be flipping a little bit. And I want you to keep your finger here and I want you to turn back. It's hard to do that. And a lot of you have split screens. So split your screen. Philippians 2 and John 13. All right. If not, get another app. Okay. So here we go. Jump back to John 13 in your Bible. Keep your finger in Philippians 2. We're coming right back. So John 13. Do you all remember this is the before the Lord's Supper? And it is Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John 13. And look at verse 3 with me. John 13. Here we go. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God. Alright? Now, flip back over. Keep your finger there too. Verse 6 in chapter 2 of Philippians. Although he existed in the form of God. Did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. Knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands. And he had come from the Father. Forth from the Father. See he existed with the Father from all time. Look at the parallel. Now flip back to verse 4 of John 13. Look what he did. Got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel he girded himself. Flip back to Philippians. Verses 7 through 8. But he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bond servant. Ooh, what did he do over here? He took up a towel. He got up. He took up a towel. Right? Here he takes the form of a bond servant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. What was he doing washing the disciples' feet? Humbling himself as a servant. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And ultimately, if you remember, the night that he did this was the night before he was betrayed, the day before he would be crucified. And this 
Not only was he showing them how they should serve, he was also pointing to the cross. Every act of service in Jesus' life where he humbled himself ultimately pointed to the ultimate act of selflessness, which was the cross. And the night before he was betrayed, here he was washing the disciples' feet, which would ultimately be fulfilled in the cross. Flip back to John. Chapter 13, verse 12. Let's skip down here. So he washes her feet. At the end of this, in verse 12, it says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again. Some of your translations say this in verse 12 there. He returned to or he resumed his place. He sat down again. Where was Jesus seated when he got up? Now, you know, the, the Last Supper table is not, it's kind, they're all on one side of the table. That's kind of hard to do that, right? But he was in a prominent position at the table. He was going to be serving the Passover. There was, there's a guy that, in, in the Jewish, in, in Judaism, they would serve, there would be someone who was in charge of the Father, right? Passing it out. He was in the prominent position at the table. He gets up, washes her feet, and he goes back to where? The prominent position at the table. Now flip back to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him. Where's he at? Back at the prominent position. You see that? This is the explanation of the life and ministry and purpose of Jesus Christ. We could go to every gospel and do what I just did. We could actually go to the book of Acts and do it as well as they talk and preach about what Jesus did. And I wanted you to see that. Also, Jesus spoke of this exaltation again. And I've got this actually up here on the screen for you in John 17, 5 in his high priestly prayer. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Lord, I've accomplished all you sent me to do, he says right before this. I've brought you glory here. Now it's time for me to be exalted back to the position from which I purposely left for the glory of you. Wow. This is what Jesus came to do. So, so I show you all this again to emphasize, again, what is taught here in, in, in th- these verses, in verses 6 through 11, is the heart of the New Testament. In fact, it's the heart and pinnacle of the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the heart of the Bible. This is what it's all about. Because we have really the, the, all, all the major teachings in the Bible, in the, first, in, in the whole Bible, in the first three chapters of Genesis. We get the fall and redemption right there, at least told about. And, and it's all pointing to what Jesus did. And this is a summary again of this. So... Verses 9 through 11, are, are, it's very clear as their meaning. All right, very clear. As Paul presents it in a very simple manner. All right, so uh, this is, we're not going to get real deep into language today, um, but just, just a little bit of English here. And he makes sure we don't miss the point. So the subject of these verses is found in verse 9. That's God the Father. That's the subject. There's two main verbs. Highly exalted and bestowed, or your translators say given or gave. Bestowed on him the name, gave the name. That's verse 9. Verses 10 and 11, we have the purpose. So the subject's God the Father. The verbs are highly exalted and bestowed. And the purpose is so that. Or your translation may say that. Verses 9 through 11. That's very simple, right? I like the way Paul writes. He knew that me as an old linebacker would be reading this one day. And I would need to understand it. So he made it real simple so I didn't miss it. 
So let's now look here at verse number 9, specifically the, the, the beginning of verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him. Or your, your translation may say, therefore. And it has this idea of that is why God did this. And therefore in scripture, or so that, it's the same word in the Greek, and we just translate it a different way in English. Um, if there's a therefore in scripture, you've got to ask the question, what? What's it there for? We need to ask that question. Thankfully, we've covered that. So we can briefly just be reminded that it points back to verses 6 through 8, Christ's humiliation. The Father's exaltation of Christ is a response to Christ's selfish humility in going to the cross. But listen to this. It's a response to it, but it's not a payment as if Christ earned his exaltation. That's really important. Christ didn't earn his exaltation. The exaltation was rightfully his because of who he was. He was God the Son. And he was going back to the Father. He didn't earn that. It's very important. But it was here in a sense, it, it, it's a response, the Father's response to the Son's work in redemption. Uh, I think Peter O'Brien explains this well when he writes, here, the Father's act of exaltation is his reply to the Son's self-humiliation and as such is to be understood as a response of vindication and approval. It confirms that the Son's work of humiliation was accomplished. It was accomplished. What did he say on the cross? To tell us die. Paid in full. It is finished. So his exaltation and his just to say what he did he did fully. Again, not a payment, but just a vindication and approval. God the Father, Jesus, was exalted. God the Father exalted Jesus, who was God the Son. And he returned to him the place of his, that he temporarily left. It was always temporary. Jesus' plan, or God's, God in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We even see this in Genesis 1 through 3. But from the plan, from before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians chapter 1, was to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. All over the Old Testament and Revelation, we see that. Okay? All of that, that was his plan. That was his purpose. He would temporarily send his son to earth to accomplishment, but not forever. His son would then again to ascend and be where we find him all throughout the New Testament, the Father's right hand. And we see that in Hebrews 12. It should be, should be say, say 12 too. That's a wrong reference, but it is the right verse. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat right at the throne of God. So, not only did the Father highly exalt the Son, right? he exalted him to the right hand, to his place of honor, his place within the Godhead. But look what else verse 9 says. Not only did he exalt the Son, but in verse 9 it says, and he bestowed or gave him or bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What in the world does that name mean? He bestowed on him or he gave him the name which is above every name. What name? Now, there's some debate here, and, 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 and it's not over heresy or anything like that. I, I think it's pretty clear I, I, um, what he's talking about. Uh, I think there's a, a few nuances that help us understand a little bit better. But the context points to the phrase in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, what's your, what's your Bible say? Is Lord. 
All your Bibles say that. Lord. And this word Lord in the Greek is the word curious. Curios. All right. And you, you can pronounce that many different ways. And we don't exactly know how ancient Greek was pronounced. We just know that how we've chosen to pronounce it so we can talk to each other. All right. So uh, it, it, curios is, is the, the, the word. Now, why do we need to know that? Because over 6,000 references to the word curios in the Old Testament and the vast majority, probably 98% of them, have to do, and they're, 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 they're translating the divine name, which is actually, we have no vowels in it, but we pronounce it Yahweh. Y-H-W-H is actually the transliteration to English, but there's no vowel, so we give the vowel so we can pronounce it, because the, a Jewish person would never pronounce the name of God. They wouldn't even write it. Alright, so fittingly, there's no vowels, so they couldn't pronounce it. But we can pronounce it now because we're in the New Covenant, Right? And we'd be access to the Father because of what Christ did. But this word is he's talking about Yahweh. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And a Greek-speaking Jew would have understood this is exactly what Paul was getting across here. He wouldn't have missed it. That Jesus Christ is Lord. So what is significant about Jesus Christ being called Yahweh in this passage? In order for us to understand that, guess we're going to have to go again. Not to John. Now we're going to go back. We're going to go back. We're going to go to the Old Testament this time. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Now remember Paul's background. He was a Jewish trained scholar. All right. And he knew his Bible. And he knew the sticky pages of the Bible too, right? The Old Testament. We need to know them too. So I want you to see here, beginning in verse 15. Keep your finger. We'll go back to, to, to uh, Philippians Two here, just a second. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 15. Let me read that for us. Remember that we're talking about Jesus Christ. He's giving them the name which is above every name. He's bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Truly, you are God who abides, who, who hides himself. O God of Israel, Savior. So, being the Savior is a tribute to the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it, a waste place, but formed to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and this, if you, a lot of your translations will have Lord, all caps. And that's designating, this is the word Yahweh. I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. How many gods are there? One God. There's no one else. All right, skip down to verses 20, verse 21. Declare and set forth your case and deed. Let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has, lo who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? Is it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow whoa that's we're going to get to that in Philippians aren't we he's quoting he's quoting Isaiah 45 in Philippians every knee will bow every tongue will swear allegiance they will say of me only in the Lord our righteousness and strength Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. 
Paul wants us to think about Isaiah 45. And if we don't understand Isaiah 45, we can't understand Philippians chapter 2. He's, he's teaching out of the Old Testament in a sense when he's writing to the Philippians in his letter. So, so flip back over there um, in, in Philippians 2. So we can easily see here that Paul, he's quoting from Isaiah 45. And the context that we just saw in Isaiah 45 tells us Jesus is being given the name Yahweh. It has to do with him being Savior and sovereign overall. Who is the Savior in Isaiah 45? Yahweh. Who is the sovereign? Meaning he reigned over all. Yahweh. And he's saying that the Father has given or bestowed upon the Son the name that is above every name. And that is the name Yahweh. And it's interesting also his name Jesus has something to do with that too. Because what does it mean? Yeshua. The Lord saves the name, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is above every name. Yahweh. I think Alistair Begg summarizes the main point here excellent when he says, God is the only Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. God the Lord is the one before whom every knee will bow, and Jesus is that Lord. That's what he's saying when he's giving the name above every name. And why did the Father highly exalt Jesus and give him the divine name? Well, look what verses 10 through 11 tell us. We see this in the word so that. Here's the purpose statement. It's a purpose that was intended and realized. This was not just a hope. Well, I I hope that this happens. No, this was going to happen no matter what. And it did and it is happening still and it will be happening. Isn't that great? There's this all in in, in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we have this, 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 this... already not yet theme all through the New Testament it's already happened and is already happening that Jesus Christ is Lord that he's being exalted that, that, that every knee bows and every, t- every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord that, that is happening it has happened and it will happen in one, one glorious day it will happen and that's what's happening here so his purpose here so Paul makes it clear what this purpose is what is it? at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, now, one day, one day, who does it say will bow in submission to Jesus as Lord? Everyone. Who's everyone? Well, he explains to us. Those who are in heaven and on earth... And under the earth. Now, let's not make this hard. Angels, humans, and this is the only one debatable, fallen angels or those who are already dead or dead without Christ. All right? Everyone. And you can just say everyone and he just clarified a little bit. All right? Everyone. And the same group will also do one more thing and that we see that in verse 11. Every tongue of the same group of people of the same group of created beings, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will confess that Jesus indeed is Yahweh. Everyone will confess that. And therefore, he's the only sovereign and savior. The deity of Christ is essential. Essential to salvation. It is not a peripheral doctrine. 
is the heart of the gospel. Because if he is not Yahweh, we have no Savior who can die in our place. So when they knock at your door, Jehovah's Witness Mormons, don't be a jerk. All right? Just shut your door on them. Well, they need Jesus. They need to know that Jesus is Lord. So he can be their Savior. They don't believe that Jesus is Yahweh. And there's a huge problem with that. Just this passage right here says there's a huge problem with that. It's essential. So here's your choice. Either bow and confess now and you will meet him as your Savior and be given heaven. Or don't bow and confess him as Lord now and you will meet him as your judge and you will be found guilty. Which will it be? We've got a choice. Either now or later. Because everyone, it says everyone, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, will bow. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether you believe it or not, you will confess it one day. And I promise you, it's better to do it now than later. Either heaven or hell. We're not talking about uh, uh, just temporal um, consequences. We're talking about eternal consequences. Not life and death, but eternal life and eternal death. That's what we're talking about here. It's huge. Then Paul says that this bowing before Jesus and confessing that he is Yahweh, that he is Lord, will be to what? The glory of God the Father. This pleases the Father. So I'm not trying to be harsh here, but anyone that thinks they're pleasing God and yet denies the deity of Christ is not pleasing God. They're glorifying themselves, not God. The exaltation of Christ and all that comes with it is the pinnacle and most glorious thought we could ever experience. Ever. There's no greater thought than this. Man could have never come up with this. That's why this another case for this, the word of God has to be from God. We would have never come up with something like this. That the God of all the earth would first of all be Trinity and then the Son would come to the earth and live a perfect life and be beaten and crucified and die. What kind of king is that? That's what they were saying. And then rise again. He would humble himself and then rise again and be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Who would come up with that? We wouldn't. Don't kid yourself. Maybe if you read the Bible, yeah, I would have come up with that. Yeah, you read the Bible. We would never come up. This is a glorious thing. It's the most glorious thought that we could ever have. So let me ask us a few questions to help us think through the implications. There's already been many, I think, already. But just help us think through the implications of this passage and how we might apply it. And there's many ways we can do this. First, here's a question. Have you bowed to Jesus as the sovereign and savior of your life? Have you done that? And as I said, I urge you to do that now. Do not wait. Because if you wait, you'll be too late. And then you'll be forced to bow and confess him as Lord. And you'll be given hell, not heaven. So I encourage you to do that today. If you have never just said, hey, I understand I'm a sinner. And God's standard is perfection. He called me to glorify him and I've sinned and I don't glorify God. Is what the scripture tells us. All of sin, right? Fall short of the glory of God. We, don't, we fall short. We don't meet his standard. But Jesus came and died in our place. He met the standard perfectly. 
And God says, if you want to meet the standard perfectly, you've got to be in Christ. So how do we get in Christ? Well, we turn from trusting in ourselves, our own self-righteousness, the deceitfulness of sin, and we turn and we embrace what Christ did on our behalf. And it says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gives us Christ's righteousness. Christ takes our sin. And we're perfect, not because of what we did, but because of what he did. I pray you do that. You would bow and confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Here's the other question. Next question. Will you daily bow, if you've already done that, will you daily bow to him and allow him to impact your entire life? Daily bow in submission to Jesus Christ, your Lord. You're the servant. He's the master, but I promise you, some of you get uncomfortable with that kind of language. He's the greatest master you'll ever have because he's in it for you and for the glory of God. He, he came and he died on your in behalf so the Father might be glorified. He wants the best for you. Now, we don't always, his best doesn't always go with what we think is the best, right? But he wants the best for us. But we've got to bow in submission. We've got to obey him. It says in John, what? If we love him, we'll what? Obey him. So we daily, are we doing that? Remember the context here, right? Remember the context. Remember verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but humility of mind. Regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Think about this. We're called to submit to the Lord, and He will empower us to do this very thing that He's called us to do. To be selfless. This will make the world take notice and take us seriously. You know, the, the problem with the church today, the world doesn't take seriously. We say we believe one thing, and yet we live often as if we don't believe what we say. And we, we, don't, we, we, don't, we, we, we live one way, all right, and we, we're living in a way that says, I don't believe what I tell you. Our Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, was exalted to the right hand of the fathers that he might make us right with God. Is that amazing? To transform us from sinners and enemies of God to saints and friends of God. That's amazing. It's a transform our whole life and everybody should know it. And, and you, you'll hear atheists and other people who don't believe in the Lord, they'll say, man, if you really believe that, you look a lot different than me. And they got a point sometimes, don't they? Let's be honest. Sometimes we don't look a whole lot, lot different than the people in the world. But if we understand this passage, it should transform us from the inside out. Now, it ain't going to happen like that. We all understand that. It's called progressive sanctification. It takes time, but we have to submit and say, Lord, I want to bow to you today. Help me today. To live in a way that makes you glorified. Here's another question. Do you really desire heaven? Do you really desire heaven? Question goes along with this. Why do you desire heaven? Many people say they look forward to heaven. They can't wait to see their, their family members. Uh, they, there's not going to be tears. And there's not going to be pain. No sickness. There's going to be gold streets. Whatever that's going to look like. There's going to be some place he prepared a place for me. Whatever that's going to look like. And, and all those things may be true. And, and they are true about heaven. I'm going to meet Abraham. And I'm going to meet David and Paul and Peter. And all these people. We're going to meet them. That's why I want to go to heaven. Those things may happen. But that's not what heaven's about. Think about how earthly focused that is. If that's as best heaven's going to get... I don't know if I want to go. But heaven anything is going to be way better than that. The exaltation of Jesus Christ will be the focus of heaven. 
That will be the focus. We get him. I don't need all the rest of the stuff. I get the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would we need anything else? I'm not saying those things won't be true, but we won't be focused. Oh, Aunt Myrtle, I haven't seen you in a long time. It's so good to see you. Oh, we're just going to sit around and talk about the old days. No, she, Aunt Myrtle's already going to be transformed. She's going to be, look at Jesus. Amen. And Uncle Hank and whoever else. Because it's about Jesus, about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, I enjoy doing weddings. And I've done a lot of them here recently. A lot of them are sitting out here and they're still married. Praise God. All right. <laughs> Can you imagine a bride saying about her wedding, oh man, I cannot wait to see how the flowers are arranged at the front of, I mean, I, that, I'm so looking forward to that. I'm so forward, looking forward to how I'm going to look in that dress. I can't wait to see how the bridesmaids, I mean, they're going to be looking so sharp. I mean, I picked out the color. I, my, 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 I've, been, I've been waiting on this since I was six years old. I've had the color picked since I was six. I, I can't wait to eat the piece of that cake Oh, man, we went to this, the greatest bakery. They made the best cake. I mean, I can't wait to see my friends and my family all there. I can't wait. There's going to be a groom there, too. Did you know that? <laughs> and you and him getting hitched up is the whole deal. All that, And I tell all those people, right? You've been married by me if you're in here. It's not about that. It's about you two coming before the Lord and being married. The groom's there, bride. And you know who's there, bride? The Christ. Christ will be there. We won't care about all the rest of the stuff. Because Christ will be exalted. And I'm telling you, and I see it, and I see, I see the bride coming down the aisle. I love this. This is one of the coolest things. And I see it, and she's not looking around. And he's not looking around, everybody else, and stuff like that. You know, she's not going like this. She's walking down, man. She's got her eye fixed on that husband, that groom. And, and, they, and they get there, and they hold hands, and they... Yeah, and they're supposed to be looking at me sometimes they're just looking at each other that's what, that's what it's like we're the bride of Christ and Christ the groom will be there we'll all be consumed by him we miss the point if we don't understand that all the attention and all the praise and all the time and all of heaven will be about Christ Alistair Begg asked this question can I honestly say that I'm looking forward to that in the there and then when I'm only marginally interested in that in the here and now. I don't know about you, I've got some work to do. I don't want to be marginally interested in the here and now. I want to be consumed by the exaltation of Christ. Is this true of you? There's an old hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Anybody ever heard of that? Maybe a few. The, 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 the Sands of Time Are Sinking by a lady named Ann Cousin. It was originally a poem that had 21 verses. They cut it down for the Baptist hymnal to about four, and they only sang three of them. Um, but here's, this is amazing. Listen to this. The bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face, I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Is he all the glory of your life today? He will be forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and this unbelievable passage of scripture that Paul writes to these people he loves so much 
He wants them to be consumed with the exaltation of Christ who humbled himself so that he could be exalted, so we might be saved, and we might live in a way that we selflessly serve others. So he might be exalted in and through our lives. And Lord, we pray that by the power of the Spirit in us, we would do that this week. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.